Hello, everyone. Welcome to Eliminate Higher Education podcast. I am extremely pleased to introduce Dr. Eloy Oakley to this podcast. Dr. Oakley has served as a chancellor for California Community Colleges since December 2016. He's an ardent advocate of the vision for success, a clear-eyed, honest look at where the California Community Colleges is succeeding and where it's falling short. The document, which is considered the North Star of the California Community Colleges, establishes a vision for the improvement with clear goals and set of commitments needed to ensure that student outcomes significantly improve. Dr. Oakley's trailblazing efforts at putting students first have been acknowledged through his appointments to the California Forward Leadership Council, the California Economic Summit, the Fair Shake Commission, and many other councils and commissions similar to that. Dr. Oakley, welcome to Illuminate Higher Education Podcast. Well, it's good to be with you, and please uh, call me Eloy. Great. Thank you. Again, I think it speaks volumes to your leadership on everything you've done and with California Community Colleges. In full disclosure, we are involved with one of your strategic initiatives, which is California Virtual Campus, where we are acting as a data integration layer between the 123 colleges to allow them to connect with different student information systems and the like. But regardless, you know, from your vantage point, you're looking at a whole list of problems to solve and issues to resolve. So just talk to me about what Eloy's day in the life of looks like, because when you say something like the issues of community colleges and how you want to solve them and specifically by putting students first, I'm just excited to hear about what you're looking on your radar with respect to issues and what are some of the solutions that you're looking to tackle as part of your daily strategic and tactical routines. Well, great. Well, that's a big question. I'll, I'll, I'll try to give you a short answer. But uh, basically, first of all, the California Community Colleges you know, serve over 2 million students. So we have 116 colleges. And you know, our entire focus is really about um, economic mobility for our students and for our communities, equity, ensuring that we create as much opportunity as possible and make sure that that opportunity is accessible by everyone in our community, regardless of where they come from, regardless of their immigration status, regardless of you know whether they're a first-time college student out of high school or they're coming back to us after uh, being formally incarcerated. So we have the great privilege in the California Community Colleges of serving the top 100% of students. So when you think about that, serving the top 100% of students, that really becomes a very big and important job, particularly at a time like this, where, you know, one, we're coming out of a pandemic where our entire system had to quickly turn on a dime and convert to online or remote learning. We have some of the most um, hard hit communities attending our colleges. You know, our students have been hit hard by the economic fallout from the pandemic. And before the pandemic, we were already having challenges with food insecurity, with housing insecurity, with adjusting to the post-recession economy and making sure that our students had access to, you know, the, the kind of quality, low-cost education that they needed in order to get a foothold in the economy. So all that combined on just an everyday, every minute basis is, is sort of 
what we're doing in the changes office and what um, we're, we're trying to, to move forward. And so you, know, you mentioned the vision for success earlier. That's really our anchor so that we can keep coming back to those fundamental principles of, of equity and diversity and inclusion and moving our, our colleges forward and, and creating a better state. So I couldn't be more pleased and proud to serve in the California community colleges and serve community colleges across the country. I mean, uh, they are really the backbone of the workforce and the anchor for a post pandemic recovery. That's amazing. I think there's a lot to be unpacked in what you talked about with respect to student success and equity, right? But let's take one one aspect of it. When you look at serving a 3 million student body where, you know, students can come from an extremely low-income family or a rural community where there is no access to internet or limited access to internet or from, you know, high-end well-connected areas like Los Angeles and San Francisco, like when you start looking at using broad terms like equity, like how do you juggle that? You know, what are some of the considerations you take to say, this is what I'm going to do to make sure that a rural student in this area is served just as well or more than a student out of Bay Area or Silicon Valley? Right. So that's an important question because, you know, lots of different people have different definitions of what they consider to be equity. And for us in the California Community Colleges, you know, equity is about having uh, equal access to opportunity, uh, regardless of, of where you are at in the state, where you come from, what your background is. So, you know, California is a big state. We have very rural communities in the north and the Central Valley. We have very poor communities throughout California, and we have some very wealthy communities like in Silicon Valley and the Bay Area, San Diego, Los Angeles, and other parts of the state. It's very much a divide between the coastal communities and the inland communities. Um, and you know that also means in an environment like we just had, unequal access to, to broadband. Uh, so that means that th there is not equity built into the system. So for us, it's about looking at data, understanding our students and their communities, and really unpacking uh, what equal access to opportunity means. In many cases, it means that some communities, uh, particularly communities of color and low-income communities, have experienced uh, student success metrics that are you know, far less than their counterparts in, in you know, white or Asian uh, Americans. And so it's about unpacking that and making sure that each college understands what equity in the context of their community means, whether it be um, equity for uh, Black and African-American students in a very urban community, equity for farm workers in a rural community, equity for low-income whites in, a, in the far north of California. So all that has to be taken into context. And and ensure that our colleges are using data to drive that definition of equity and be very honest and transparent about it so that we're holding up a mirror that is accurate and so that and that we are working on closing the equity gap that exists regardless of what part of the state you're in. Yeah, that's amazing. I can't even imagine what type of data you'll have to look at to make that happen, right? Because there's social factors, there's economic factors, 
there are factors like single parent families versus multi-parent families and multiracial and other metrics. But I want to take a step back and look at your backstory as well, because I was reading your bio and I was quite impressed how you took your own upbringing. Um, and I, I don't want to spoil it for by explaining my version of it, but you explained in your bio that when you tried to go to college, there were, you found that there were some issues with access because of you know where you came from, uh, your father being a U.S. citizen, but of Mexican heritage. So I want to talk about a little bit about that and see how your own personal story and also how your personal story influences your focus on serving California students. We all bring our biases to the table and, and certainly my, my experience growing up influences and informs and affects the way I think about how we serve um, students in the California community colleges. You know, I grew up in a community, you know, much like many of the students that we serve grow up in. It's a working class community um, uh, where there is very little and still is uh, in the community I came from, very little uh, success in completing a higher education credential. I mean, I think um, my zip code still has less than three or four percent of the uh, working adults there have a bachelor's degree. So, so you know, the context is different for people growing up there. I mean, there isn't a lot of discussion about uh, higher education, you know, comparing to where I am today with my children. I mean, higher education is definitely part of the discussion, everyday discussion. It is just part of the culture now. It wasn't part of the culture when I was growing up. So when you're missing those influences and, and missing access to family or friends that know how to navigate uh, higher education, then, you know, you don't think too much growing up about how you're going to access higher education or, or seeing yourself as part of higher education. And, and that was the case for me. I mean, even though I got um, offers to go to some great colleges and universities, I just didn't understand enough about how I was going to make that work. And there wasn't enough people around me telling me, don't worry about it. You know, We'll, we'll help you navigate it. So, so many students, particularly first-generation students, are missing that network, missing that information, uh, critical information that helps them have confidence in taking that leap and, and seeing themselves as part of higher education. So it wasn't until years later, after serving in the military, after beginning to raise a family, that I you know, decided to, to attend a community college. And it was there that I finally understood began to understand that perhaps college was for me, that there was a path for me to transfer to the University of California, Irvine, um, and that literally changed the trajectory of my life. And um, now I have the tools to, to help my kids. So the way that informs me now is we shouldn't have a system, we shouldn't continue to build on the system that creates so many barriers for first-generation students. The amount of information you need in order to navigate higher education is way too onerous. And so that informs the way I approach our work, you know, trying to make our system more navigable, trying to meet students where they're at, rather than having students meet us where we're at in our institutions, and to redesign the way we think about higher education, beginning with the student in mind. Uh, we inherited higher education from 
uh, our friends across the Atlantic Ocean. And there are a lot of things about that higher education system that we shouldn't be replicating. And, and that's what we're trying to do now is decolonize the way that we think about higher education, open up a door to more students, think about higher education, not as a selective process, but as you know, a process of democratization. Uh, so so that, that's the way I think about it. You know, I was lucky and uh, we shouldn't have a system that relies on luck for our students. Yeah, I think there's so much to unpack there. I definitely want to take two stabs at this answer and uh, talk about this, right? Um, so let's talk about the barriers, right? When, because I think we hear it about this podcast on every call where we talk about education being the greatest equalizer, but it's also a platform that it is very hard to get onto. So mm-hmm. I would say 20 years ago, if you want to get a, a admission into UC Berkeley, I guess you needed good scores or something, right? Now, mm-hmm. my son is a junior in high school and he has amazing SAT scores. He has great ECs. But we have no dreams of him getting into Berkeley because for a student to get into Berkeley or Stanford, they need to set up their first business. They need to make at least $100,000 and probably, you know, write 15 business plans. I'm just giving an example. Right. And, uh, you know, they should start it when they're in middle school. Like, (laughs) how do you define that? When we discussed it, it was like, well, you don't need to go to college if you do all that stuff. Why do you need to go to Stanford? So the point being, we made higher education so selective that it's no longer an equitable platform. It's really a platform only accessible for people that are, you know, let's be blunt, very rich or Mm -hmm. very smart or very smart and rich. So what happens to the remaining 95% of the people? So I want to hear Mm -hmm. your answer to that, this concept of barriers in higher education. Well, I think you just hit on, you know, the, biggest systemic barrier. And one can argue that these systemic barriers were, were, were put in place on purpose to, to keep certain types of students out. So these systemic barriers are, are the focus of our attention now. And as you mentioned, um, we've created a system of higher education. I mean, we inherited a system of higher education, let's, let's be honest, that was meant to, to keep people out. It was only meant uh, for a certain strata of individuals. And, you know, over time, we've tried to chip away at that. You know, when UC Berkeley was founded, it was founded as an answer, a public option for those who were trying to go to the selective universities uh, on the East Coast. And so it it began well-intentioned, but now it has fallen into this similar trap as those East Coast Ivy League schools. And that's because we as a society, we as Americans have placed greater value on more selective universities. So the drive has always been to be more like Harvard, to be more like Yale. You know, Stanford has strived to be the most selective. And so that race has caused us to lose sight of what the point of higher education is for. And the point of higher education is to lift as many people as possible to create you know, economic mobility and to make us a more resilient state and more resilient country. So as we think about it in the context of UC Berkeley, and let's just take that example. I won't even talk about Stanford because they have become so ridiculous that they're just (laughs) out of this world or Caltech. I mean, it's just gotten so ridiculous. But 
The the good news in the UC context is yes, we have Berkeley and it's still considered the flagship, but you also have UCLA, you also have UC Irvine, you also have UC Riverside, UC San Diego. So we have to continue to put greater and greater value on all of our public broad access universities or public R1 universities who are trying to create that greater opportunity. I think Arizona State University and the work that Micro Crow has done. And you know, you even have the work of you know the Western Governors Universities or the Southern New Hampshire's of the world who are trying to open up more access to adult learners. So that's where we need to put our focus. That's where we need to put our value system on institutions that open their door wider, not that close their door to, to more students, because you know, we have the sense as you just described that. You know, unless my son or daughter goes to Berkeley or Stanford, you know, that's that's going to be a problem. Well, you know, I, I would argue that, um, you know, they have if if we just put our focus on opening up more access, then everyone would you know, come out better. And of course, the more selective we make our institutions, the higher the cost to attend those institution goes up and you know we're creating a whole generation of students burdened with debt. No, I think that's absolutely correct. There's two parts to this, right? One is the problem itself. The problem is the uber selectivity of higher education and we can speak volumes about that. If you think about, you know, Varun, my son was talking about, hey, do you know that institutions have lesser and lesser acceptance rate? It looks like Stanford mm-hmm. was 12% a couple of years ago, and now it's 8%. Northwestern was 15%, and now it's 9%. Like, why is that? A, I think, I don't want to criticize them, but I think, A, they do look at securing more applications so that their acceptance rate is lower, mm-hmm. but some of this might be demand too. But I want to change the discussion from problem to a solution because this is where I think your leadership with community colleges is really powerful. And also initiatives like California Virtual Campus are extremely powerful as well. So if four-year colleges are acting to put barriers for entry, and we can also speak volumes about like how it is coming from the elitist traditions of Rome or even madrasas, you know, and it comes from that religious pedagogy, right? So it's this concept that we are going to take the most, you know, disciplined devotees and make them our people or Mm -hmm. smartest people who want to be philosophers, I guess. So that elitist to more of an equitable society, I totally agree that community colleges are the absolute critical tool for that. Right now, the growth we are seeing in community colleges, the growth we are seeing in four-year colleges like uh, ASU, Western Gowners, and Walden is going to be the true recipe mm-hmm. for success. However, my question is, and I'll let you react to that, but I want to ask you this other question that is, a, I feel like, a concern where I still see that even though community colleges are a real solution for students, I still feel like there is a certain level of you know, distrust or Mm-hmm. Second levelness about community colleges, where they say, "Well, I'm going to community college so that I can go to a UC system. I'm going to a community college so that I can go to a four-year college." How do we change the dynamic? Because community college by itself is a great tool for somebody who wants to be an adult learner, who wants to upskill mm-hmm. themselves, or somebody who wants to get the education. There is nothing wrong with going to community college to secure an education. But yet we kind of look down upon community colleges. Mm-hmm. Am I wrong in understanding that? 
No, there there is still this belief system that we hold on to that um, because community colleges may be less expensive, because community colleges may be more open to admitting any any of a number of different types of students that it's lesser than, you know, that's just a, this belief system that we, we cling on to in, in America and, you know, obviously many other places in, in Western civilization. I think we have reached a point now, particularly uh, as more and more Americans distrust higher education. Um, I think you've seen in, in Gallup polls or in uh, others that, um, the level of distrust with higher education is growing. And I think that's because most Americans see uh, higher education as this traditional ivory tower type of organization that does more to keep people out than to let people in. And I think that's where community colleges come in and, and other broad access um, colleges and universities that you know, opening the door to, to, to more Americans, democratizing access to higher education. I think you've seen this movement in, um, you've seen a, a lot more documentation of scandals, like we saw recently over admissions. We've seen the dismantling of the SAT and the ACT because people have become to realize that it's nothing more than an arms race of who has wealth versus who has talent. We've seen, you know, a White House now that has a first lady who teachers at a community college and a president who attended a public university. And a and vice so, president that went to HBCU. And to an HBCU. So so we're beginning to break through those barriers, but it takes time. You know, we still we still want to believe. I mean, if you think about it, whenever you hear somebody talking on TV or whenever you see somebody quoted in the paper, they're quick to say Harvard professor. Harvard graduate. They don't say community college professor, community college graduate. So we still cling to these notions that just because you were you're teaching at or were admitted into a highly selective university, that makes you different. And right. I think those notions are going to take time to break down, but but we have to break them down because the unrest that we saw over the summer is rooted in this distrust of um, of government, this distrust of the status quo. Whether you agree with it or not, I think there is a lot of misinformation. And I think community colleges and other broad access colleges and universities are the answers to that. Yeah, I totally agree. I think, I'm not sure how we can run away from it, but one of the things that we were thinking was, instead of saying a student of Harvard or student of Stanford, is just a student of California education system. Right. And I think if you do that and remove the label, then it will force everybody to look at education at its value, right? So that, that's what I want to get into. Because if you look at dollars to dollars on the return of education for higher education, there's a lot more value. You get it purely from education if you go to an ASU or Walden mm -hmm. or California community colleges. But the place where... Um, students like for example but you know i'm a parent i'm selfish i guess uh, mm -hmm. when i if i have to ask what should i why should i send my son to stanford i would say well that's because it's not just the education they bring in it's ecosystem of other 
things right. like for example the other students that he's going to be with the mm -hmm. other engagements on campus the fact that it's in the middle of silicon valley that's where i think it gets a lot just as much or more value mm -hmm. how do we bridge that gap where mm -hmm. we can say yes we can provide comparable education but we can also bring in other resources our community colleges looking at bringing in investors like stanford does or bringing mm -hmm. in entrepreneurship or other community activism into the campuses mm -hmm. no i i think that's a good uh, analogy i mean i, I heard um, someone once say that uh, the greatest value one gets by sending their son or daughter to harvard is um making sure that they have a rich roommate uh, so, you know, it is the network that you're buying into. It is those resources that you're you're allowing your son or daughter to access. Um, and so it may not be the quality of the instruction, but then it's it's more about they're selling the quality of the experience. And, and I understand that. So I think, you know, there's been a, a movement across the country to create better systems, better uh, networking systems for students who don't have access to those networks. Uh, I think our, our colleges are working very hard on that to create greater value in the experience for students. I mean, yes, quality instruction is um, fantastic in the California community colleges. I mean, you have access to great professors whose sole job is to teach. And, you know, they average um, a student to faculty ratio of about 35. So you can't get that at an R1 university. Uh, your ratio in English composition class is going to be one to 350. Uh, and you'll never see the, the tenure track professor. So sure. that is the value of community colleges. So now we have to continue to create greater value around that experience. There's been a large investment in student success over the last four to five years. We've implemented the Guided Pathways Framework that really focuses on the entire student experience. And that helps illuminate uh, what other activities really lead to that improvement of student experience, accessing career services, accessing other student networks, student club organizations, opportunities to uh, have internships, to uh, learn and earn while you're pursuing your education. Those are the other parts of the student experience that help increase student success. I mean, why does Stanford have high student success expectation? That's because their students, they invest heavily in their students and they make sure that they don't fail. They expose them to a lot of different networks and a lot of opportunities and that keeps them engaged. We need to learn from that. I think, you know, there are examples like the CUNY ASAP program that invests a lot in students' needs outside of the classroom to ensure that you know, if they have a flat tire that morning, they're not going to, to miss class. If they can't get their book on the first week of class, we make sure that there are ways to make sure that happens. So those are the types of things that we need to think about that Harvard or Stanford offers students that are just as valuable to our students and would create um, greater value because the economic returns on community colleges, colleges like the ones that we have, I mean, are amazing for the amount of people that we educate, the amount of economic return that we give back to the state of California is tremendous, but we can continue to grow that even though we have 
large student bodies, uh, we can learn from the experiences that we see in the more selective colleges and universities and help our students access networks uh, in ways that we haven't in the past. Yeah, I think you're you're absolutely correct. Um, focusing on student success, focusing on the experience, focusing on the engagement holistically is is going to be the critical part. Um, you know, I think we can probably set aside that concept that you know you no matter how much you can do, you can't really create that level of enthusiasm that you get from investors and others. But I think if student success speaks for itself, right? For example, if a community college has 60% graduation rate uh, or completion rate, then I think there'll be a lot more focused by um, mm-hmm. the companies around you to come and invest from, uh, come, and, come and invest in your initiatives, uh, be part of the collaboration. So, but I want to talk about the role of technology and role of data, mm-hmm. um, because I know you have your own podcast and on your podcast, um, on one of them, the speakers, I know you were not on that call, but talked about the role of data and there was focus on data governance and mm-hmm. data warehouses. Tell me about what are some of the the hindrances or barriers mm-hmm. for you to secure data from all the 123 colleges so that mm-hmm. you can say, you know, this is my dashboard. This is how each of these colleges are doing and figure out how to invest better resources based on mm-hmm. how the colleges are performing. Can you talk to me about your data problem or data solutions? Sure. So particularly as we think about the Guided Pathways framework, one of the key pillars is, is data. Being able to look at key performance indicators and be able to, in as much real time as possible, be able to direct resources to places where it has the greatest impact on student success. The only way to understand that is to have access to the data and to be able to um, build dashboards of those key performance indicators, to be able to customize the data to you know, one of our 116 colleges that may be, have a little bit different student demographic mix than another. So that has been the goal of the Chancellor's Office to build that data infrastructure as well as that of, of the governor. I mean, the governor, uh, Governor Newsom and his team are building a cradle to career uh, intersegmental data system, which would be very helpful because if you think about it, if a student through their K-12 experience, I mean, there are a lot, there's a lot of information that a community college uh, could immediately harness to help a student be successful if we had data transmitted from the K-12 to go to the high school to the community college. I mean, for one example, if if they are on free and reduced lunch in high school, that's a pretty good indication that they're poor and they're struggling to find their next meal. So why wouldn't we immediately capture that data and build a support system around that student on day one, rather than waiting for that student to tell us he or she is struggling with food insecurity, which may not be until the second, third, or fourth semester. Um, so that's or just drop one off example. Altogether. Or drop yeah. off altogether, exactly. So the Chancellor's Office has been engaged in uh, building uh, a new data infrastructure. um, And uh, we began by focusing on uh, key performance indicators. Chancellor's Office had historically published um, data that's a lot more retrospective than being prospective. Um, And so we wanted to create 
a system of data that can help colleges look at what's happening today rather than looking at the data and figuring out what happened two years ago. The other thing that we're doing is, as I mentioned, I keep mentioning the, the guided pathways framework. Why that's important for us is because then we create a common definition of student success metrics across the entire system. And that's important. I'm not saying that the guided pathways framework is a silver bullet, but it gives us w one specific way of talking about data. Uh, and so in that regard, we can build a centralized data system that speaks to all 116 colleges. Now, you know, they have to do, take that next mile forward and, and dig into their specific data on the ground in their community, but at least they have an in, a clear indicator of how, you know, students are doing uh, on these key performance indicators. How do their students compare to the college 15, 20 miles away um, they can begin to dig into that data. So that, that's where we're at today. We feel that the only way that we're going to increase success is through uh, the use of technology to be able to reach more students in a real-time manner and to be able to have the data necessary for us to understand our students better on an individual basis, not an aggregate basis. Yeah. Most of our data systems look at students on the aggregate basis, as large, you know, uh, chunks of data on a particular demographic and in a particular region, which really doesn't give us enough information to give to the faculty member in a classroom about what's happening with their individual students. So that's where we need to go in this next mile of work that we're doing. That's amazing. I really like your concept about putting students first and being more personalized and focus on each student's growth. I had several discussions with universities like University of DC, where their graduation rate is about 8%. And they have similar problem with the community colleges acting as a feeder college to the four-year college. But I want to ask you about this data as a solution. But instead of just looking at a student as a, a sentient being after they enter the college, it will be good for us to look at the student before they enter the college, right, mm -hmm. at admission, and say, this student is showing in his high school transcript that he got 2.5 GPA on his math and whatever, 3.0 score on English. So he or she is disadvantaged at enrollment. So if we can build a better on-ramp for them by giving them better resources, whether it is um, you know, more Khan Academy or more individualized self-learning so that they're better prepared, that also will be a lot more valuable for students as they prepare for curriculum. Because from everything we hear from many colleges, one of the biggest reasons why underprivileged students, um, because of socioeconomic status, struggle with colleges because they were never prepared for college. They didn't know what to expect. And by mm -hmm. the time they know what to expect, they've already failed a bunch of courses mm -hmm. and they're already disappointed. So have you talked about you know, I'm sure it's already in your initiatives. I wanted to know if there is data collection and data actionable information efforts before they step their foot on campuses. So the answer is, is, is yes. And while we wait for the governor's office to create this intersegmental data system to give us more information, you know, which would be ideal, to have information about a student's complete education journey before they get to college, um, that would give us a lot more information. I mean, think about it. The way, the reason we have 
admissions exams or assessment tests is because we either don't know what they did in high school or don't trust what they did in high school. And, and having more information about a student's experience gives us much better understanding of their um, talents and challenges than a standardized te test would ever give us. So it's critical for us to continue this move toward individualized instruction. The other thing we we're talking about doing is um, we are moving away from traditional remedial education uh, for students that may come to us with some sort of, of lack of uh, mastery in a particular subject matter or a particular component of a subject matter. You know, having the ability to create a competency-based supports that target the individual's a challenge with the subject matter rather than throwing them back into an 18-week course to repeat everything they did in high school, you know, it's sort of like a precision medicine argument. The more we know about what the challenge is, the more we can target um, the response uh, and help that student maintain momentum toward their degree rather than setting them back. I think we do students a disservice when we implicitly or explicitly tell them that they're not good enough to be in a transfer level course. Uh, what we have found in the community colleges is that the majority of students are good enough. They just needed some co-curricular support. They just needed a little bit of tutoring in a particular part of the subject matter. They didn't need to be thrown back uh, in a remedial course. So we need to do more of that. And the other thing I'd say is we are significantly increasing concurrent enrollment in the high schools. The more that we can expose, particularly first-generation students, to college-level coursework in high school and get them to earn college credits, one, they're used to the way that a college course, um, the expectations of a college course. Two, they begin to feel like they're already part of college. So it's not that big of a transition when they graduate from high school. And, and you know, the reality is that we can do a lot more with the senior year of high school. You know, too many cases, you know, st students are, are given a lot more freedom in their senior year of high school that, you know, sometimes is good, sometimes is not so good. I think the more that we expose them early on to college level courses, get them earning credits toward college and think about. Uh, the senior year of high school no longer as an end point, but just a transition point. You know, we still have this belief that all you need is a high school diploma, and that's just not the case anymore. So uh, let's end that belief. I totally agree. I think um, there's no doubt that in every student needs a college degree, whether it's an associate degree or a micro-credential, that's a different story. Um, but I think you're absolutely correct. You know, if you think about the total education is like that 18 month remedial course you're talking about, because we have this notion that a student has to finish this cohort, right? Uh, 10th grade classes, 11th grade classes, mm -hmm. 12th grade classes, and say, this is a cohort, they need to finish it. But they might be in a different journey on math when compared to mm -hmm. English versus sciences, and we have no individualized instruction. And that's why I'm always enamored by game-based learning. When I say game-based learning, what I mean by that is instead of saying, you know, he finished his 11th grade math, so let's push him to 12th grade, 
it should be just a seamless trajectory where a student right. is finishing modules and the faster they finish one module the faster they can go to the next module and make it engaging exciting and entertaining to the students like they're used to and everything they do when they play mm-hmm. roadblocks or uh you know minecraft they're not asked to say this is your minecraft 101 course right. finish this take a test and we'll go to the next level they they play a game they perform some activity they move forward like i think that's why i think gamification is one of the great tools that we can implement mm-hmm. for education what do you think of you know innovative technologies like that whether it's gamification mm-hmm. or otherwise and how they can be applied for higher education well in higher education this conversation begins with moving away from our traditional way of measuring learning our traditional way of measuring learning is seat time how many right. hours did you spend uh, in this coursework um, and moving more toward a competency-based education model where students are progressing based on their ability to master a competency and then they progress. CBE, competency-based education, is opening up a lot of doors. We in the community colleges, you know, one, we launched one college, Calvary College, that's fully CBE and we are opening up uh, CBE to all of our colleges going forward. We see this as a critical component of dismantling the um, uh, credit hour instruction, the seat time notion of instruction, and moving more toward a personalized instructional model that allows students to progress based on you know their individual journey. Um, and so. I think this movement is the right direction. I think it'll help more, particularly adult learners who need to earn at different paces than you know, high school age learners. Um, and I, I see this only growing uh, in popularity. Uh, and um, I, I think that leads us several steps closer to creating a more individualized instructional journey. I totally agree. I think, um, again, I've had the pleasure of working with Brandman University mm-hmm. on their CBD, CBE platform. Yep. Uh, and I think there are some lessons I learned from there. But I think as we start implementing more and more of those technologies for community colleges or all the colleges for that matter, I don't see any reason why a student has to come to a campus to learn something. If they can learn on their own accord and use an instructor or faculty member for facilitation or you know mentoring, that's when education truly becomes valuable. Um, I know that we are running to the top of the hour and I wanna make sure that we um, hear your thoughts on the future of education. Like let's take 10, 20 years from now, where do you see education going? You know, What are your big, three predictions for higher education, if you will. Personalization of education, personalized education is where we're going. Um, I think that there is gonna be a continued drive. Um, There is a huge appetite to dismantle, you know, the way we think about education today, disaggregate the degree. I think there'll be much more disaggregating uh, of what we think about as a degree, because if you think about it, what, what is a degree? A degree is a very blunt instrument to communicate what kind of skills a student has mastered. But you know, you speak to any employer, it really doesn't re- tell you too much about what a prospective employee can or can't do. We are gonna continue to move away from that. The more uh, that we have technology that allows us 
to build portfolios for a student, you know, to for them to demonstrate their competencies, their experiences, and yes, their formal learning. But formal learning will become less and less of, of a priority. And being able to validate competency skills uh, will be given a greater and greater premium. So that's where I see us going. And, and of course, that model runs head on into the model of our traditional higher education institutions that want to own um, you know, what's behind the degree. Um, I think they're on the losing end of this, uh, of this fight. And um, I'm looking forward to see how technology uh, as well as you know, different pedagogies begin to disrupt that model. That's great. Dr. Eli Oakley, I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. It's been very refreshing and informative and enlightening for me. You're welcome to join my podcast anytime. Thank you so much for joining and taking your time to talk to me. Karen, it was a pleasure talking to you and thanks for inviting me. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Illuminate Higher Education, sponsored by End-to-End Services and our Illuminate app. If something we said today resonated with you, please subscribe, rate, and download our podcast. And share this episode with your network. You can learn more about Illuminate app at illuminateapp.com and continue the conversation with us there. If there are any topics you'd like us to discuss further, please email them to us at podcast at n2nservices.com. That's podcast at n2nservices.com. Thank you.